All right, welcome to the Pitch Stack Podcast, episode four. Today's April 10th, five days after the dreaded banned and restricted announcement. We'll get to that along with some other things. I'm joined as always by Mr. Matthew Rodriguez. Matt, how are you today? I'm doing just fine. How are you? Doing all right. Um, man, was I exhausted yesterday. You know, I... I always read about like Gary Kasparov as a kid. He would like play in these chess matches and he'd lose like 10 pounds and then sleep for three days afterwards. Dear God. Man, as soon as I was done with our skirmish yesterday, I went home and I just couldn't concentrate on anything. I was like, that, there it goes. There's all the neurons for the whole week. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely gone. But yeah, we played in a skirmish yesterday, and uh, Matt, you kicked the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, um, probably as good as any of my games could have possibly gone. Yeah, I think I landed one attack on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, a couple, a couple, but yeah, a couple. <laughs> yeah, I think there was one turn you got off something like sixteen arcane damage. It was pretty gross. Yeah, I had two rebels. That happens when you have two rebels. So. If you haven't guessed already, Matt was on Viserai, uh, OTK Viserai, and I was on Kasai, which is a weird deck. It's too, uh, it shouldn't be a complicated deck, but I think as I get older, it becomes harder to think. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I felt like I had a pretty good tournament. Uh, up until the top eight, you were my only loss. I made it to the finals and I got smoked by Kano. Um, ironically, it was a though, 23 damage turn. <laughs> ironically, though, you made it to the finals. Yeah. And uh, I, I lost out in top eight uh, the first round. So <laughs> what uh, what deck did you end up losing to? Uh, well, my in Swiss, I was what four rounds. So I went uh, three one. I only lost to what was it? Jeez. Oh, I lost to Jonathan. That was my only uh, Jonathan uh-huh. on Bravo vanilla. Bravo, of course. Yeah. Yeah, good old Bravo, man. He's kind and, of you know, a menace. Usually, yeah, that deck's sick. The um, I don't know. Usually, I like to do a viewer question segment, but I feel like the viewer questions we got this week are so topical. We might as well just pepper them in. So, uh, Jonathan Owens, future Pro Tour competitor, likely champion, um, likely. he sent in a question this week, and he wants to know what we think about Starvo and Blitz. Now, I didn't face John yesterday, but you did. So, what do you think of that deck? Uh, Bravo was like, it was close match for the two of us, actually. Um, I mean, he's, he has an insane record on that deck, but, um, Bravo showstopper and blitz is like insane. I've, I've watched that deck play against other decks. Uh, but our game, um, it cut down to the wire. Like he even had, um, if he hadn't had like that sigil ready to go, he would have died for sure. Cause he, we ended the game like where he was at three life. Um, he had been at one life earlier and he had sigiled, uh, but he got me down and beat me up. So, but yeah, that was, uh, that was probably his closest game that night. I lost that one, but I still made top eight. And then sadly I, uh, got a little greedy and, uh, played a Sonata after whiffing once and I whiffed twice and, uh, had no thing to do that turn expecting I would hit at least some other attack and I passed it to the brute player who just absolute max good old max who absolutely just clobbered me and then uh he went on so that was sweet uh yeah. good for him 
And then uh, I, the other games I played that day, round one were you, round two I played against. Uh, actually, I'm pretty sure I played against Max and I won. But we faced off in the uh, top eight again, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe, yeah. And yeah. then I played against Haciel, mirror match, Viserai. And uh, I took that one. And then, yeah, that was essentially my day. Yeah. How about you? I um, I had a weird day on Kasai. Um, I had some weird matches. I uh, so I got absolutely stomped by you, and I had been on like a seven-game losing streak with Kasai at that point. And shout out to my friend Jake Kissel because the last time he stomped me, I mentioned to him that I felt like I had reached a skill ceiling at the game where I wasn't sure what to get better at. And he kind of like sat down with me and he was like, you got like, he kind of showed me like this cool order of operations to look at your equipment and like the order you're blocking in and using your equipment and like how to maximize your blocked resources with said equipment. And um, it really, I don't know, I feel like it helped my Kasai game go up to the next level. Um because immediately after losing you, I ended up beating Jake uh, just barely. It was a really good game. He was on Reinar. And that Intimidate is just absolutely brutal. And then yeah. uh, after that, I went up against a Prism player, which was bizarre. Um, that was a, I felt like that was a very bad matchup for the Prism player uh, because just Kasai, you're just going to ping him with one sword, pop his aura every single turn. And uh, I don't know. I think uh, after that, I ended up playing against Hasiel, uh, Hasiel Diaz. Uh, the greatest guardian player in the world who was on Viserai. AKA Jason Red Hat. Yeah, AKA Jason Red Hat. <laughs> and he was on Viserai. And uh, that game came down to the wire. And I just, I feel like I drew very well. And um, I kind of knew what cards to look out for after playing against your version of, mm-hmm. uh, of Viserai. And I got to live the dream where I was able to pitch my entire hand on his OTK turn um, to get rid of most of the like rune chant damage. And then I got to live the Kasai dream, which uh, if you're unaware is when you have six copper tokens of blood on her hands and arsenal and your courage of blade hold still up. So you are able to pop your courage of blade hold and then Ooh. swing for three, four times with your oh, swords for God free. Damn, that's so gross. <laughs> and I ended up getting over, um, cause he was down to one life and only had an attack action hand, which buffed my last sword. Um, then from there, I played the prison player again in the top eight. Uh, then I played Max, uh, who was on Brute, uh, in the top four. And then in the finals, of course, I play against Carlos. We said it here last week. I'll say it here again. Likely the greatest Kano player in the world. And, um, man, I, I swung for a lethal and then he came right back with 23 damage. So <laughs> Yeah, that was insane, dude. <laughs> yeah. Kano kind of just freaking pops off, man, like out of nowhere. And I don't know, man. He just understands the deck. He understands, yeah. you know, his his outs. He knows, you know, he knows what he's played, what he hasn't played, what he's pitched. Right? He's a, he's a very, very skilled player. Yeah, he plays it like a really good Hold'em player where he's like, if I do this, like, I mean, I would imagine, like, you know, statistically, I need to opt into one of these three cards and just he plays like, I don't know, he plays very um, 
just his lines of play are incredibly straightforward and constantly making the optimal decisions. And when you run into a Kano mm-hmm. player like that, my God, you have to get lucky to beat them. <laughs> it's tough, man. It really is tough. Me and him, uh, we go at it a lot, a lot with Viserai and Kano. And in CC, I mean, it ends up just turning into me, me racing him as fast as I possibly can, getting him down as low as possible, and then him just like burning me out right at the last second, you know? Yeah. Uh, most of the time it goes to Kano. But uh, it's been interesting in Blitz because Blitz is really where Kano has his way, you know? Absolutely. Everyone's at half their life total. He does about the same amount of damage as he normally does anyways. So he's yeah. everyone's in kill range, essentially. They get to start. They get to start Kano at five life. I think that's what they should do <laughs> instead of 15. <laughs> we should just start at five. Kano, I think <laughs> Wouldn't stand a chance in CC with 20 life even. Yeah, right? Well, this week in Flesh and Blood, we had a couple big announcements. We had the BNR announcement, which we'll get to. We had the Monarch First Edition print run announced. We had a new hero announced. Uh, so there's a lot to talk about, and we'll get to it right after the intro. Let's go. You're listening to the Pitch Stack Podcast. All right, and we're back. Um, Matt, I think we'll get to the biggest news first. And I think the news that involves, well, I think up until two days ago, it involved the most speculation. Um, But I believe that this banned and restricted announcement, um, it seemed to have a lot of, I don't want to say veiled intentions, but... It certainly left me with a lot of questions afterwards when they said no bans, no changes. So what do you think, Matt? Man, this um, I haven't seen the community this divided, honestly. Um, the BNR announcement uh, came right where everyone was expecting there to be some kind of announcement, some sort of addressment of like the Starvo issue, the big triangle issue of uh, Prism and uh, Viserai and Starvo, of course. Um, but yeah, no changes. And, uh, additionally, they announced a new BNR, uh, reassessment date on May 2nd, which essentially would be at the end of all remaining, uh, living legend points events, uh, before pro tour. Pro tour yeah. one that is. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm in the camp that I think that the current, uh, decision was the right decision that the meta is still very new. And I do think there are some avenues that haven't been explored yet. I'm not really the greatest, uh, you know, deck techer or, you know, uh, experimenter in that regard. But I feel like there's a lot of uh, things that haven't been looked at yet um, in in regard to solving the problem with Starvo or Prism or Viserai. Um, But I think really their intention is for Starvo to gain the last remaining living legend points. which initially didn't seem like there were going to be enough points for him to gain uh, from the events remaining, but they did announce that there would be two additional CC events uh, in that uh, time span from now until May 2nd. So uh, he has plenty of opportunity to win those events and uh, 
take the first crown for Living Legend. Hopefully. Uh, and if not, well, we'll see what they decide to do May 2nd. If they decide to put uh, put their uh, foot down and do something about Starvo. Or if they let him run wild into Pro Tour. I think that may be a mistake. But I do think that, um, you know, like we, we discussed this before. There definitely was some intention behind Starvo. Uh, but at the same time, they do have a track record of not, uh, you know, not really preparing for the effects of certain cards being introduced in the game, you know, with the yeah. dusk bait, dusk blade banning and seeds of agony, not being tested correctly. You know, there's a lot of issues that they've had in the past with testing cards, you know, so it wouldn't surprise me if they decided that they were going to have to ban him or something preemptively. Yeah. I was joking about this yesterday after the skirmish, uh, me, you and a couple other guys, we all went and we, we got food afterwards, and I was joking about this. And it's like, is LSS's internal testing system toxic enough? <laughs> what's the What's the question I yeah. asked? You know, like maybe New Zealand's just it's the it's the third greatest country to live in in the world. Um, it has one of the best work life balances. Maybe they're just not stressed out enough <laughs> to get sweaty and play testing. That's funny. <laughs> I think they probably should look into. Um, Reaching out to pros, right? To yeah. test the stuff. But at the same time, I think that there there's of course the you know, I don't know, there's a bit of an issue with like if somebody is gonna remain a pro, having that information early, you know. It's yeah. very, very valuable information. So I don't know, they'd have to, you know, give up the opportunity to p- compete, perhaps, but of course they'd get a nice job. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's, there's a, uh, a bit of a trade-off there. I think that there. happened with Ian Duke back in the day. Reed Duke's brother really? gave up his opportunities to compete to go work for Wizards r and I didn't know he did. Where, uh, I didn't he's know still he one of their main set designers to this day. Wow. But, you know, it's interesting. Um, so, the no bands, I think I agree with. I think there's nothing wrong with a rock, paper, scissors meta. I think that's fine. I think really... If there is an issue with Starvo, it's that the deck isn't all that difficult to pilot. Um, I think that would be why people like maybe why it's so dominant is because the amount of people that can just pick it up and play to a good result. Like, don't get me wrong, like the most skilled Starvo player is still going to beat a less skilled Starvo player every single time. But without having that initial skill curve as high as it is for other decks, maybe that's why we're seeing so many high results from the deck. And I think it's interesting that I know a lot of people thought this was kind of controversial, but for LSS to change some of their skirmishes and like a and like events to CC from Blitz, I think actually is a really good decision. Like not in not just in terms of like oh look now Starvo can get Living Legend. Like I know it looks that way. I don't think that's really the entire like uh, I don't think that's the whole reason they're doing it. I think it's giving them a chance to gather more CC data on a highly competitive level. Um, because I think there's like a lot more pieces than Starvo that they're looking at. You know, this is a professional 100%. game design company. They have a lot going on. They're looking at a lot of different things. And, you know, I would imagine that there's cards that they're worried about that we haven't even thought of. Um, like, you know, I'd imagine they do print bad cards, but like, especially with the Duskblade scenario, but they're so quick to call themselves out on their own mistake 
that I think they must be conflicted about something here. And I think what this leads into is like uh, with Magic the Gathering's pro scene, one thing that would always happen at Magic Pro Tours is it would be right after a new set got released. And because there won't be a set released right before this Pro Tour, the deck building and team strategy metagaming aspect of being a professional player won't be tested unless they shake the meta up right before, you know, the Pro Tour happens. Yeah. I think we should expect, we should, at least for the sake of, you know, being prepared, we should expect something to happen on May 2nd. Um, I don't know what. And back to what you're saying, you know, they're, I think they're being cautiously, they're trading cautiously because they're, they don't want to set a precedent, I think. Right. Yeah. And this is like the first time a hero has been so like, you know, rampant, right? It's been so, I mean, Obviously, Shane and Briar were problems, but I think this is the first time a hero has been so clearly well-cut defined as a very unstoppable force. Yeah. And it's been very difficult for many decks to deal with. Um, with Shane, you ha- he had bad matchups, um, but a lot of the time, you know, he can just, like, have a really good turn and then just turn that matchup on its head. Um, Briar also had uh, an issue of being extremely easy to play and also being really, really strong. But I do think that there were some times where decks had 50-50 chances, right? You were still pretty well slated to have a chance to beat that deck. But it feels right now that most decks coming up against Starvo have either that 50-50 or worse matchup. Yeah. It certainly seems that way. Um, Like, I would say Prism is probably the closest at, like, maybe a 49%. Um, yeah, I don't know. Even the Viscerai matchup, I mean, you try to go OTK against him because you can't put enough pressure uh, being aggressive. And even with that, depending on how well he gets his, like, dominate turns and what kind of attacks he draws, like, you're just going to get crushed before you get a certain amount of rune chance. And then, of course, there's the variance as well. You're, uh, if you're not drawing your defense reactions early, they're still left in your deck when you try to combo off. It's not going to be... Uh, it's not going to be enough if you hit two or three of those and then you miss on some of your attacks. You only get three attacks out of something like that. That's not good enough. That's yeah. not going to close the game out. And he's going to be left with 15 life and you're going to be back again trying to attack and take him down. And it's not going to work. Yeah, it's interesting how... And, you know, I meant to, I meant to say this when John was asking what we thought about Bravo and the Blitz meta. But it's interesting how Guardian... Like the uh, the Bravo Blitz deck and the Starvo deck have both kind of taken this this defensive approach where like and I think it makes so much sense in Blitz with just regular Bravo like it makes sense in a forty card format to be able to exhaust your opponent you know like I mean mm-hmm. going for the exhaustion win is obviously a way to win it's like you know you can mill and magic and it makes sense for Guardian to be able to do that. And I think what's weird about this Guardian is it's so rare for this particular Guardian build in Starvo to take a turn off um, just to like prevent a bunch of damage, which seems to me to be the way that Guardian's built is to take turns off and then come back stronger. And for me, Starvo just kind of looks like I don't feel like the deck should be this consistent. Right. Agreed. I mean, they... 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Pentamol versions you're running, you know, there are some versions that have nearly 60-something percent chance to just hit all three elements every single turn, right? And then you can sandbag those uh, pulses and just hold on to them. Yeah, especially a crown of seeds. So, yeah. I don't know. That said, though, the rock, paper, scissors meta, I'm okay with it for the time being. And there is something that I thought about yesterday. Awesome. Um, so, average cost of a blitz deck. And follow me. I know it seems like a left turn. <laughs> average yeah, cost yeah. of a blitz deck, right? Eleven ninety nine. You grab two of those. You start playing for twenty three ninety eight US. This Dorinthia versus Rhinar, two blitz deck set, is retailing for forty nine ninety nine. Is the mm-hmm. suggested retail price. Um, I think that we may see. Very specific buffs to two heroes in Reinar and Dory before this Pro Tour. Like, even though these are Blitz decks, they are still getting new Warrior and new Brute cards. And that yeah. could also shake up the meta. Interesting. That is something I hadn't considered. Um, already, we already seen one of those specialization cards for Dory, and it's, it's phenomenal. But I don't know if that's enough uh, to quite give Dory what she needs. Um, but I do think that there could be something in there for those decks. Um, you know, the contents of that box are essentially the two decks and a lore book, uh, which comes out to 50 bucks, but the two decks, they say they're going to be printing equipment as well. So those equipment may be new staples for these heroes. So I guess that's something to look forward to for sure. And what yeah. I think that releases before Pro Tour. Yeah, it does. What the uh, second actually, week of May? Yeah, let's. I want to. I want to double check that. What is it? They're calling classic battles. But you know what's interesting though, right? With that price, like every blitz deck comes with common and rare equipment, right? So like obviously there's going to be a few majestics in there. And so the question is, is it going to be chase cards for warrior and brute, or are we going to see like art of war and light and strike command and conquer in a reprint in this particular setup? And I think it has to be one of those things. Hmm. That would be interesting. Welcome, even. Uh, I just hope that there's supplies enough for the people that were going to start like buying and hoarding these things. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. You, you got a free command and conquer equipment and like staple majestics for heroes in one box. Yeah, sure. Sign me up. I'll buy a bunch. Oh, you know what? I'm wrong. It's actually two weeks after the Pro Tour this comes out. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was. I thought it might have been after the Pro Tour. Well, darn it. Yeah. There was so much for all <laughs> my cool theory Pro Tour crafting. two. Pro Tour in France. <laughs> Pro Tour two. Yeah. In France, yeah. the sequel, <laughs> Pro Tour 2 Origins. Electric um, Blue. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. You talk about people hoarding these. You talk about value of cards. You know, the other big announcement we saw this week, and this to me is so fascinating because of the way flesh and blood is treated by the community. But we saw the Monarch First Edition print run get published. Yeah. And uh, it was about 10 times that of Alpha or, uh, or Arcane First Edition and close to four times that of Crucible. Um, I don't know. I think there's a lot of people that were hoarding these First Edition Monarch boxes uh, that are probably... I don't know. Do you think that people were expecting there to be less of these? Um, it depends on who you ask. 
But I do think that there was a significant issue with their decision or their, their I guess, whatever their contractual uh, partnership is like with Channel Fireball. Right. The big issue was that um, Channel Fireball had massive numbers of pallets of this product, both this and Tails, and um, they held it. You know, and then they started channel. Uh, no, sorry, they started Car Chop Live, uh, presumably, and then they just started pumping and dumping. You know, um, yeah, and it caused a big fuss. And during the time when these were still like new products, and people were thinking, "Oh man, the print runs insane. It's got to be to the moon because there's so much of this." People aren't even paying like, you know, at, fir- at first the prices for Monarch First Edition were like two, three hundred. I remember. I got my friend to buy a couple of them because at the time I couldn't really do it myself. You know, I know somebody else who bought a case and they weren't really players of the game. They just thought, hey, this, you know, this first edition of Flesh and Blood, look at Crucible, right? Look at uh, yeah. Arcane Rising. This is a good investment. So they spent the $200, $300. And well, I mean, now you can look at for Monarch boxes at 150 but that's not the point. I mean, long term, it's still probably decent. Um, but it wasn't like a quick turnaround like the other ones. It wasn't something that people expect. It wasn't what people were expecting because a lot of people bought in at that high price range. And then soon enough, we saw these boxes uh, well below 200, you know, up yeah. until essentially now. And then even now, uh, people aren't very confident in that number that they put out. 125, 125,000 uh, boxes is a lot, but I don't think it is comparatively to the number of people who have started playing the game since then. Because if you, yeah. you know, I feel like I, I don't know where I, I've listened to several content creators discuss this. Um, they share similar sentiments about the number, the growth of the game compared to the amount of boxes printed for Monarch and Crucible. And I think that the growth of the game out out uh, out does that, you know, outnumbers that. So perhaps this isn't a terribly bad number, but, you know, just kind of what we should start expecting from you know, the the forward uh, first edition print runs. Now, Tales of Varia might be in the same situation where, like, there's so much product being ordered by a few people that it seems like there's, you know, a lot of it out there and they were just pumping it, you know, during the first uh, first month of it. And then even then, since then, it's been very easy to find and very cheap. Yeah, that you it can has. buy it and for like $80 right now. Yeah. And I think Tales of Aria, I think what I mean, to me, the game really exploded with Monarch's release. I think yeah. that whole period of time, like people were returning to play in LGS's, um, you know, like trading card investment culture was at like the all time high and it was probably the highest it had been in 20 years. And, you know, Monarch came out then. That's when the game really exploded. And I think if I'm LSS, I saw those Monarch numbers and I called up Cardamundi and I was like, yeah, whatever we're doing for Tales of Aria, double it. Oh, yeah. um, And so I think we're going to see that Tales of Aria is going to have maybe an even larger, like maybe even 200,000 displays as the print run. And it's going to be awkward because tales of Arya has this problem where the, really the Achilles heel of that set is it's too narrow. Like it only supports the three heroes in that set. Um, Mostly. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, you could ar- kind of argue the same thing with Monarch. Um, but Monarch in and of itself, I feel like the heroes were more widely played and more popular than the tales of Arya heroes. And that kind of, uh, 
set this weird precedent of just like, you know, a three hero set, it's just too narrow. Really, the only thing you can pull out of any of those boxes where you're assured to make your money back is like if you if you pull a legendary equipment. I mean, amongst the there's zero price difference amongst any of the first edition mythics. And like even I mean, it's like any almost any cold foil you hit, if it's not a mythic or a legendary, you're looking at another $20 card that you're just sitting on. And yeah. I think when you get to those price differences and you see the same thing with Monarch, right? Where really only the cold foils are the things that have a price multiplier. Uh, from the first edition to the unlimited, like the vast majority of first edition majestics uh, versus unlimited majestics for Monarch, there really isn't a price difference between the two. Like you're looking yeah. at a dollar tops, you know? Yeah. And when we see that, and I know you brought this up earlier, like now every single set is out of print. Uh, yes, not they printing are. anything. Uh, this wasn't officially announced, but they've adjusted their website to reflect that uh, Tales of Aria and Monarch unlimited are out of print. Of course, we got the uh, announcement for Everfest already earlier last month. But uh, yeah, we they just uh, updated the website to show those sets out of print. So do you think it's safe to say that we're not going to see Everfest Unlimited and that this is the beginning of Fab 2.0? I, I think so. Uh, it, it's hard to say. Everfest has only been out for a couple months. Um, and yeah, just over two months as we're recording this. Right, and Tales of Aria... Um, Unlimited didn't come out for a while. A while. Tales of yeah. Aria Unlimited, I remember, came out in September. We had first edition still in November. And by the maybe December, like, I think maybe the back end of December, Unlimited finally came out. Or the middle of December. So, yeah. I mean, we're talking, yeah, like three-ish months. So I think by next month, we will know if any kind of Everfest Unlimited is coming. Though it seems dubious. Um, yeah, that was mid-December this year. I From Channel Fireball, I got a first edition box of Tales of Aria, all three Blitz decks, and a Channel Mount Heroic playmat all together bundled up for 110. So obviously, Channel wow. Fireball knew that they had a lot of this. Um, They're basically, at that point, based on the price and like everything, they're basically just giving Blitz decks away. Um, <laughs> yeah, which uh, they weren't too uh, popular considering the uh, skill level or like the uh, mechanics level of those cards for newer players. Yeah. And it's, it's weird. So there's, there's actually two direction, two separate directions. I want to take this conversation in because I think there's two very interesting things to consider with the current model. I know they're They've got to be moving to fab 2.0. I don't think we're going to see Everfest unlimited. I think just based on, the amount of of first edition Everfest that you're just seeing everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, I mean, if, if it was anywhere near the print runs of even Monarch or Toa, like you would be like, oh, you guys still have Everfest. Cool. Um, but, yeah. you know, you go, you go to any LGS and it's like they got a case of them in the back just ready for you to ask about. Um, so I think it's interesting when we then go to average box value and expected value of a box so and the thing that brings me to this is i just bought my friend mike you know they had the magic pro announcements coming out and my friend mike he decided he was going to build a bunch of modern decks 
And he decided that he was going to focus on magic, cash out of flesh and blood. So people like that do exist. They are out there. I've only met one of them. But he decided, so his entire collection was a Blitz deck and a box of Welcome to Wraith. And he hit on the best non-legendary hit you can hit with Welcome to Wraith, which is an Enlightened Strike. Um, He had buy a box promos, all sorts of cool stuff and valued out at TCG market. His whole collection was worth $45, including 33 from that enlightened strike strike. And I think it's really interesting when we look at box prices where like, let's say you hit like a, if you hit like a really good box of welcome to Wraith, you would expect to make your money back. And we're seeing them at MSRP, like 60, 70 bucks. Like, Really, if you don't hit a foil E-Strike, a foil of any of the three or four Chase Majestics, or a legendary equipment, you're not making your money back. And so, like, chances are now there's one box of Wraith unlimited per case that will allow you to make the money you're putting into it back. And I know people always say buy singles, but at the end of the day... If you buy a bunch of boxes, technically the price should be in a way where it averages out, right? Like yeah. buy three boxes at 60 bucks, you should expect to get somewhere between like 170 to $200 worth of cards. And we're seeing boxes where if you just don't hit that piece of legendary equipment or one of the few chase mythics, you just you like lose out on it. And I think what's really bizarre is the I think what's happening is there is a lot more flesh and blood in circulation than anybody realizes. I mean, we don't see a single unlimited print run number that they've put out. And what this would cause is like for the chase cards to be the actual, you know, to be the things that are actually still holding value where everything else just goes to zero because so much of it's been opened. And it's really interesting. So... All that aside, that's a lot of setup, a lot of information at once. I know. Um, It brings me to a question. Do you think LSS should move their model from one legendary per case to one per box? Um, hmm, Interesting. Uh, I don't know. That's my answer is I don't know. I I mean, I, I want to say... Yes, I want more legendaries, but um, <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if they did do it. I mean, we're talking about Tap Fab 2.0, right? If we want to move away from like a first and unlimited model, let's get some of those, you know, legendaries out there, more of them out there, you know? Um, but then again, you're you're still going to sacrifice the value of that, those legendaries, which is good, right? This is all still good, meaning your boxes will be better and singles will be cheaper. Um, yeah. I mean, singles being cheaper is like ideal, right? This is what this is a game. This is a game, right? We're playing it. So uh, collectors will still get to have their chase cards and fables and you know cold foils potentially. I don't know what they're what they're going to be doing with uh, you know how they're going to print their boxes moving forward. Hopefully, there's still some kind of like way for collectors to search for something, right? Because Magic, I think, has figured it out a little bit. And I and I know everyone's super frustrated with, like, you know, you have four or five different versions of the same exact card. You know, you open a box, it's, it's not even okay, exciting because it's like, well, I've got this really cool looking card and it's like 10 cents. You know, I got this it, foil planeswalker. 
85 cents. Exactly. So, but you know, what is great about that though, is that they're still selling product. Uh, people are getting singles as cheap as ever before. You know, I mean, Jenga Taxis was like the strongest card in the entire set, arguably of the Kamigawa set, like one of the coolest, most chasest cards in that whole set. And the Frexian version is like less than 20 bucks. Yeah. That's insane. Like in, I remember when, um, call time came out, this is like when they first started doing set booster boxes, uh, Phyrexian Vorinclex, which is a lot stronger to be fair than, uh, Jenga Taxius. But, uh, that was like a 40, $50 Phyrexian card. And if you got a foil one, yeah, foil one's like 150, you paid for the whole freaking box and double, you know, um, yeah. I'm not sure what the price are like now, but you know, I think that, uh, continuing to print multiple versions of cards and stuff, or uh, just, you know, making sure cards pop up more frequently, like with set booster boxes and stuff is a good idea. And uh, people will keep chasing for those cards. More singles will hit the market. They'll be cheaper. Uh, and I think that's what we should be. I think that's what fab should be aiming for. Yeah. Um, I don't know and if necessarily know. they need to do, sorry. I don't know if they necessarily need to give like alternate art treatments to every card, but I do like what they did with Everfest where, you know, people who really want like the bling version, they'll get the full art version and pay the $10 for that one full art version or $5 or whatever it is. And then the regular card for that set, for that regular Majestic is much cheaper or the regular rare is much cheaper. So, so much of it is out, so much of it is out there, you know? Yeah. And you know, you made the point that I was just about to make. I think you hit the nail on the head where I think Everfest, they're testing a lot of fab 2.0 concepts. You know, we see Earthbore Bounty. There's two different arts. You know, there's extended art. We're seeing a lot of the Majestics have extended art that gives them a very nice price multiplier. Uh, even the rares, you know, the playable rares have a nice price addition with the extended arts. You see, like, even, even Starvo has, you know, his own cold foil chase card within it. And I think what this lets them do is I don't think LSS felt good about when they reprinted Skullcap and Tunic of having them be non-foil. I don't think they liked that. So if we're seeing this new phase of Fab 2.0, where there is no unlimited printing, the idea of whenever, you know, I don't know, whenever, I, I know this is like the worst, the worst example, but like whenever Silver Palms sees a reprint, if it's a rainbow foil instead of cold foil, it still lines up with their original reprinting mission statement. And it makes it so like we're not, it makes it so the card doesn't feel less special, which mm -hmm. I feel like is what happened with the dull cap and the Krunik, where suddenly it was like the economy class version where it was like, here's this purely utilitarian version of the card. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if they necessarily like that because I think LSS wants there to be that discovering treasure feeling of opening up a legendary and the idea of a non-foil legendary seems to be not line up with the product feel that they've been going for and, and you know so, what's funny is that both those cards are like not that far off from the price of the original like yeah. the original rainbow foil not cold foil obviously um, but the original rainbow foil of those cards at least tunic i don't know if uh skull cap is still like 130 or something uh, yeah, I do believe I think Skullcap. There's a there's a decent gap. I'm actually going to look that up. But I remember Tunic always being very close. They're, they're very trailing closely to each other. The WTR one and the Crucible one. 
There's about a $50 difference yeah. between the Arcane Rising and the Everfest. Understandable. Arcane Rising, though, it being the set it is, uh, for sure. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, like, it's still saving money, even if it's $10 on Tunic or $50 on uh, Skullcap for playability reasons. I think those cards, uh, I, I like that they exist. Non-foil. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I think the... Um, yeah, I you know, I think you're right that maybe that is the utilitarian like maybe that is a good idea where they printed these things that are just such staples for them to exist in a cheaper non-foil way makes a lot of sense. But then I guess the question as we talk about print runs comes and is the Krunik and the original WTR tunic, are they similar in price because the print runs were about equal as opposed to just Everfest? There seems to be a giant flood of, and is that what's keeping the gap in the two skull caps, you know? Um, I'm not sure. I think it's probably more to do with uh, aesthetics, you know, and also playability. Yeah. I mean, the tunic is a staple for a lot of decks, but not every deck. Right. And almost yeah. and I can I can't I don't know. There's so few decks that don't want a call skull cap, right? That in addition to Arcane not uh rising being out of print sooner than WTR Unlimited, uh WTR Unlimited still being like extremely available everywhere. Um yeah. I think that that really affects the price of uh the tunic and crucible and also true. Crucible was the first to be called out of print and it's still very available and still very affordable. Yeah, that's very true. But uh, Arcane Rising is somehow is nowhere to be found, just nearly. And the prices for that has gone up to about eighty to ninety dollars a box. So there's definitely a supply difference between those of those two unlimited those three unlimited sets and the availability. Yeah. And I think that's there's just so many chase cards in Arcane Rising. Um, amongst the Majestics. You know, I mean, if you hit on any of the Chase Majestics in Arcane Rising, it's better than hitting any single card in Everfest other than Grandeur of Valahai, which is crazy to think about. And that includes Extended Arts um, yeah. outside of Aether Wildfire. Yeah, it is crazy. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm looking forward to Fab 2.0. I don't think we're going to see Everfest Unlimited, but you're right. They do have a nice gap between the two. So who's to say if this is the beginning of Fab 2.0 or not? Now, Matt, I know I mentioned that there was another point of discussion I wanted to bring up here when it involves the print runs of these boxes and what we're looking at. And this is something that I think is interesting. And... It's actually, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's difficult for me to talk about, but it's, it's a, it's not something that I immediately was like, oh, weird. Like when I first started reading about this, it wasn't a direction I wanted to think in. And, you know, a lot of us think of LSS as like, you know, they're the shining mountain on a hill. They're the company that we wish Watsi was, you know, they handle the bands well. Like obviously there's a few things wrong with LSS and their play testing, but obviously they're still small. They're just getting started. And so many of us have so much faith in LSS that I don't really think LSS is who I'm levying this criticism at. I think it's more the major retailers, but you look at this and do you think, and this is a very interesting question. Do you think that there, that it might be unethical 
for LSS to be holding back print run numbers. Which initially, when I was asked this, I was like, oh, that's weird. I hadn't really even considered that. And it took me a second to think about it. That's why I'll just keep, I'll keep talking about it because it was such a weird concept to me to think about. Hmm. But when you look at like what happened with, um, with Card Shop Live, where they knew they had pallets of this stuff and they kind of tried to sell certain first editions as chase boxes, you know? And yeah. it's kind of like, um, I know this is the classic analogy and I hate to be like the 10,000th person bringing it up, but it's kind of like what De Beers does with diamonds. <laughs> you know, they have like, they have like a billion of them sitting in a yeah. warehouse somewhere, but they're like, no, it's super rare. Gotcha. I, I don't know that it is unethical. I, I mean, okay. Comparatively to every other card game. I mean, magic has never released a print number. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. Um, I mean, I I understand how Magic like runs their the printings typically for like standard products or collector boosters and stuff like that. But um, mo- I mean, some most people I think not most people, but uh, a good chunk of players understand how they uh, print cards and how they print the sets. Right? Usually, print standard to demand. Once demand drops, it's out. Not demand. You know what I mean? Like. Uh, they'll drop the printing once uh, they need to free up the printing space for another set, right? And the set's not, you know, moving as fast. Uh, but collector booster boxes are usually just one print run, right? But it's yeah. a large amount and they push it out in waves. Um, and then as far as like other master type sets or like, you know, uh, Commander Legend type sets, uh, they could usually be, depending on what kind of set it is, uh, print just print to demand, the same thing. You know, as far as, far as people want it and as long as we can use the printer space, They'll print it, right? Commander Legends was printed a lot for a long yeah. time. Uh, but master sets are usually uh, a lot fewer, a lot shorter printed. Unless they do something like they did, like oddly with Eternal Masters. I don't know if you remember that set. They pr- pushed out the original printing. And then for Christmas time, they pushed out a brand new printing of it again for the holidays. Oh, that's interesting. I actually didn't know they did it in waves. Yeah, sometimes they do. Uh, but it may be just that they have pallets and they hold them. Right. Or they print again and then they send out more. But I think uh, LSS being transparent with the numbers is something that no other game company has done. Or as far as I understand, no other successful game company has done. And they've done it to good success. Like this is something that they have been very transparent about since the beginning, since they started the game. Essentially, we've known the print runs for first editions of everything. Uh, up until right now, we just got the Monarch numbers, and ef- eventually, I'm sure we'll get the Tales of Aria numbers and the uh, Everfest numbers once these sets have fully, uh, you know, made their way around. Yeah. No, you know what? I think that makes I think that makes sense. And when I saw that question posed, I sat and I thought about it, and it, you know, you raised such an interesting point that changed my entire view on the entire thing, which is, hey. This is the only TCG that's showing you print runs so you can be aware of how scarce your sealed box is, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, though, to be fair, about, no, go ahead. Oh, no. Yeah, please go ahead. Saying, to be fair, though, I don't know if that just necessarily like uh, makes like like just removes all possible criticism for them, meaning like, you know, just because nobody else is doing it and then that they're doing it only a little slightly delayed. I don't know if that's like still uh ethical do you know you know what i mean like maybe the ethical thing would be for all game companies to re- reveal all of their print num- run numbers whenever the set drops 
Yeah. But I mean, that's not really reasonable for at least a money making company. That's not reasonable. Um, yeah, it's totally understandable why game companies don't do it. Right. But if we want to talk about like the best choice for the player would be for them to know the numbers of all print runs as soon as that's come out. But it is, I do commend uh, LSS for releasing those numbers because nobody else does. Now, I don't know if you yeah. understand the 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 difference between what I was trying to explain, but. Yeah, no, I think no, I think I think I get it. Like, obviously. Like maybe really maybe there are like maybe it's problematic that they're not releasing them immediately if they're going to release them. But the fact that they're doing it in the first place puts them ahead. Oh, of other absolutely. Companies. Yeah, definitely. ahead. Yeah. You know. And it's it's interesting, right, because it all ties back to the very fundamental concept of a trading card game, which is. The the difference between a trading card game and a game of chess is that your game pieces have a secondary use as a financial instrument. And when you're kind of guessing at the scarcity of the print run and you're using pure supply and demand, I think it's kind of good for the game because it creates a player's market for prices as opposed to a collector's market where you're just going to grab these cards put them on a shelf and try to recapture what happened when you didn't throw away your Pokemon base set cards, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And I, I don't know. It's interesting because you get into the idea of if they release those numbers initially, um, maybe it becomes too much of a collector's market. And maybe by holding those numbers back for a little bit, you allow card prices to settle where they're at in demands for people's willingness to pay to stay competitive in the game first the amount of cards in circulation. So I do I do I do think I like the way they've done things. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Sure. I do like the way they've done things. You know, I know the way they do announcements and stuff for the banning and whatnot has been good as well, uh, as far as announcing events and the price support for those events as well. It's all been I think LS has done LSS has done a very good job of being transparent and communicative. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, before we get to our last topic, speaking of a collector's market and holding on to cards uh, for no purpose other than to hope that they're worth more in the future, uh, we have viewer question today from our friend Max. And Max asked, um, you know, do you think it's wise to start investing in a UPF deck if the format becomes more credible? Uh, and what do you think the meta looks like? Where do you see UPF in the future? Now, I don't necessarily have good answers to a lot of those questions. I have a good answer. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, never. <laughs> 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 but I, I do think, though, uh, a demand for uh, those fun, exciting like interactions for UPF could drive the price of certain cards if it's if the demand is high enough. Right now, I don't think that player base or the card base really supports a, a very in depth and like um, a very in depth and uh, complex UPF format. Right? Uh, yeah. Not like I mean, if we want to treat UPF a little bit, if we want to compare UPF to like Commander, right? Yeah, I think you I have think, to. I think we need. I think it's got a long way to go it's not unplayable, right? And maybe if you introduce your own house rules or your own mechanics and stuff, those things can gain traction and become more popular. 
right? And things that can kind of drive the prices of cars like the talismans and potions and stuff, right? If you give heroes a talisman slot, uh, an amulet slot, and then like two potion slots or something, right? Yeah. Uh, that'd be really cool. You know, just like house rules and stuff for UPF uh, yeah. or, or PVE even, right? There are already PVE formats that exist. I haven't really looked at it or played any of them. Uh, but I just don't think that for future financial value or anything like that, I don't think that UPF uh, will really have much of that. Though for metas, of course, that's all just going to depend on who can interact with the mo- who can interact with the most players the most amount of times. And I think yeah. that usually ends up being Kano because he's got cards that deal damage to uh, <laughs> yeah. Each he's got cards uh, like Chain Lightning that deal damage to each opposing uh, hero. Uh, or target heroes and stuff, you know, or, you know, what's funny is another interaction is that uh, when rune chants pop, they say deal damage to target uh, hero. Yeah. So you can attack yeah. with a rune chant on one flare. You can attack with a rune flash on some flare and deal. Okay. Rune chant over there. Rune chant over there. Rune chant over there. Yeah. You can spread the love. You can put yeah. politics with the rune chants on the stack. So I think a lot of those <laughs> cards, those fun, like cards that interact with multiple players or say each player, uh, those are going to be the ones I think that uh, those are going to be the ones I think that are going to be the most uh, desirable for UPF. Yeah, and you know, and the reason Max brings this up is I mentioned it to him over lunch uh, the other day that I and I was comparing it to my experience with Magic: The Gathering and how I saw so many rare cards that were just sitting in my bulk box worth ten, fifteen cents. Um, suddenly wizards started printing commander decks. They started showing the format some love and then the format became more and more popular to the point where like I was finding like 30, 40, $50 cards in my bulk rare box. Um, like stuff where I was really disappointed to open in the past, um, was suddenly like a card. I was like, Oh, this needs to go in the special binder. Um, and I, I can kind of see that possibly happening in the future with flesh and blood but i think i think you're right though where the only thing that you can really speculate on other than cold foil dust blade as we all know the easiest spec of all time yeah um cheapest (laughs) is the ones that interact with multiple opponents i think you nailed it that those are probably if you're trying to put some cards away and the items and the items the talismans and amulets those cold foil talisman and amulets do not sleep on those do not. Yeah, I think you're right. Make sure you get one of each. <laughs> this is not financial advice. <laughs> <laughs> most certainly uh, is not. I think most um, players' collections, as long as, as if they have if they have open boxes of all the sets and stuff, I think most players' collections will slowly gain value over time as matters change, new heroes are introduced, and more mechanics are introduced. Uh, older cars will all of a sudden, out of nowhere, be like, "Oh, I interact really well with that," and then. You have a rare from like WTR or Arcane Rising, all of a sudden become you know a ten dollar card. Yeah, like oh, that's out of print. I need that card for my deck. Yeah, absolutely. It's like um, I don't know. I needed some reserve list cards that were completely worthless for my Lord Wingrace deck, and it's like what sixty dollars? Like my goodness, <laughs> I remember when this was free. Uh, that was <laughs> that's how I felt about a lot of cards. Sack my so lands? Who would sack my own lands? Who wants to do that? What are you insane? Are you crazy? <laughs> Right. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that is kind of the big takeaway is a lot of cards 
in the future could just be a card away. And I think that's what makes it so hard to speculate on. Is, you know. Yeah, it's very hard to see into the future. Yeah. For now. Some Um, might say impossible. Some might say impossible unless you're opting three to five each turn and dealing arcane to people's faces. It's easy. It's the opting that's looking into the future. Um, So we had one last topic to get to. um, And this is the reveal of a new hero that's going to be given to what appears to be invited cosplayers to the Pro Tour. And I'd like to start this off with a question from the world's luckiest man, the winner of every (laughs) raffle I have ever seen drawn in person, Mr. Haciel Diaz. He hasn't won every raffle, just 25 of them. Just 25. Okay, there's still like six (laughs) other raffles that he lost. Um, (laughs) And, you know, he, he actually won the Arsenal Pass giveaway. He's headed to Pro Tour New Jersey. Uh, congratulations, Haciel. And he sent a question our way. He said, Dear Pitch Stack, to cosplay or not to cosplay? That is the question. The new Taylor hero seems sick. So my question is, if you were to cosplay at the Pro Tour, what hero would you dress up as? Oh, man. Well, so I have an easy answer. <laughs> What's I'm your going to dust, dust out my short jorts and go as Dash. Oh, okay. Hell yeah. Those cutoffs haven't been relevant since the 90s. But you know, <laughs> but the, like the rest of development cosplay leads straight into Dash. With the rolled up cuffs? Exactly. <laughs> That's not a bad answer. I think it's the closest to normal clothes, right? Yeah, you, you can get like uh, the goggles and like, you know, a little... Futuristic steampunk pistol, you know? Exactly. Dye your hair a little kind of like an auburn red. Exactly. See, you get it. I get it. What would you do? <laughs> Ideally? <laughs> are you talking about what I would do if I just wanted to cosplay or what would I money, do? Money, no I, object. I, oh, money, no object. That answer is What extremely- would you cosplay <laughs> as? Uh, Viscerai. Viscerai? I, I, yeah. I just love the I just love the goddamn design so much. <laughs> just could you imagine? I've thought about this so much. Um, could you imagine just like the whole like just a, a professional level design like cosplay, right? You pay somebody who dev- like creates cosplays like as much money as they needed to create all the armor with like all the moving parts, the cool like uh, divots in the armor with like the glowing purple. Right. And then the whole chest piece and the nebula blade and the helmet that can come off. Right. That'd be so sick. And then underneath, you can paint your uh, face kind of like with the purple stripes that he has as the young hero and stuff like the striations. And what would be even cooler is if the chest armor can open up like a little like door and you could see the Arknight shard on the inside. Yeah. You have like an Arknight shard piece there you can pull out kind of thing and it can glow purple and shit. Like I've thought about this like a. Like forever. <laughs> you just like call up John Malo, who, you know, not a household name, but he did design the vast majority of the armor and costumes for Star Wars. Really? That'd be good. <laughs> yeah. It's like I got the guy that designed Darth Vader. Or, or whoever's out here designing these Warhammer and Fallout, like Fallout power armor, like cosplays and stuff, the ones that have beeping and lights and shit and like open up and have like motors that, you know, move like parts and stuff. Like, yeah. 
yeah. <laughs> Those, that, that's the guy to talk to. And if anyone, like, <laughs> it's just funny. you just got like one of those people on YouTube that's like, look at this cosplay I made, and it's like your entire house is a factory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got all these linens on this table over here. On the back table, I'll have a milling machine. It's like, this was the easiest part. I soldered together this microprocessor that reads my eye twitches to display different patterns of lights. It's oh, like, so easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, don't know. I feel like I'd mess up Viserai cosplay and not just myself. I'd mess it up for other people too, because it would be so difficult for me to not talk like Bane from the Dark Knight. I don't oh, know man. why, Yeah, that, but in my head, Viserai that. has like a weird voice where he's like, I don't know, where he's just like... <laughs> I don't even want to do What's your headcanon Viserai voice? Oh, where he's just like, I don't know, like 12 arcane damage to you. Oh my God. I don't know. (laughs) He's doing like the full Bane in my head because I mean, like, obviously his voice is messed up. Dude washed up on a beach and then like a giant floating head imbued him with dark magic. I don't think he's just like, hey, 12 arcane damage to your face. You know, like. (laughs) Definitely not with that podcaster voice. Yeah, right. (laughs) No, I think he's got kind of like that that uh, machined, like covered up because he's got like the face thing on the helmet, like a it Kylo sounds like Ren deal. Yeah, he's kind of talking through like a voice box sort of deal. Yeah, like Kylo Ren sort of style, but a little bit more strained and confused. Yeah, that's my that, guess. Yeah, that's fair. That demonastery, it sure is. It sure is. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, what I don't know, but it starts with a D. I'm not going to remember Demonic. it. Yeah, it sure is demonic. Exactly. <laughs> it sure is demonic, diabolical, and disillusioning. All those things at once. Um, so let's talk about this Taylor hero a little bit uh, before we wrap up the show. Now, are, are we on the same page where based on the wording, it appears that they're only giving this card out to invited cosplayers? Um, I think there will be some flexibility there, but I think that all invited cosplayers will probably get a copy. And you think, yeah, I could see James White with like 20 of them in his pocket, just handing them out like Werther's originals. <laughs> like just, it's like, that's a nice cosplay. Have a tailor. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see that. I don't, I don't think that they wouldn't do that. You know, uh, the card for sure is beautiful. I love it. I wish I could get one uh, without paying a bunch of money. Um, I think that the cosplayers who put a lot of effort into the game definitely deserve it. You know, um, I mean, they take the time to actually look into the details of every card that has the image on it of the character, you know, and trying to find like the best way to uh, express that character. You know what I mean? Um, and just, I don't know, just essentially represent that character. So, yeah, I mean, they put a lot of work and effort, so I think they deserve that. And I think that anyone who comes in to pro tour with a really sick cosplay that, you know, has put a lot of effort into it too. I think they deserve one as well. Yeah. And I don't know if you saw the full art, but there's like a Corgi and a treasure chest. Yeah. And like, the art's so cool. It is very cool. And apparently it's like, I don't know. I see people like zooming into the art and like cutting it out and looking at like certain pictures and stuff. Like maybe I think they're saying it's like based on somebody. Yeah. I, that would make sense to me. Just there's, there's too many like pictures in the background that are clearly like someone's life moments for it to not be like, uh, I don't know, maybe like I'd have to look into like uh, the, the artist is Andy Aslamov. I'd have to look into his other art 
Oh, yeah. And see if this is like, you know, a love letter to somebody he knows or if it's supposed to be somebody that they're thanking for doing something for the community because it's definitely interesting. And I think the card's super cool. It's almost like a guardian. It is. Yeah, where you can just block <laughs> with all the equipment ever printed, <laughs> you know? And then just swap it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, gosh, it seems busted. And so this leads to another question where do you think that I forget the bard's name. He's just Bardman. Uh, do you think the bard, who I really will remember his name in the future. Uh, oh, Bjork. Yes, Bjork. Bjork the bard. Um, so we have, we've got the bard. We've got this new shapeshifter card. Do you think that they end up in the same category as Rudy Gemkeeper? Yeah, I mean, that's essentially where they are. So if... If anyone hasn't uh, heard or read it before, uh, no uh, hero is legal for play that hasn't been printed for in a uh, in a actual set. That's a huge relief. Yeah. <laughs> so if it hasn't been printed in a set, it's not legal to play in Blitz or uh, CC. But oh, of course, there is UPF, and of course, UPF is a casual format, and everyone can agree whether to let you shuffle their decks together or not. Obviously, probably not. Uh, or let you play Taylor, which it would probably only happen once. And they're like, yeah, that's busted. Don't do that. <laughs> um, that's interesting. You know, yeah, no, I think Taylor would be fun to play. She seems cool. Of course, minus the card pull. Uh, you won't have access to uh, any other cards besides generics. Well, actually, no, weapons are equipment. Oh, yeah. That's why oh, it says, yeah. that's why it says you cannot have. Uh, more than one of any named different. It says you have to have a different name, so you can't be like Kadachi Kadachi Taylor. That makes sense. <laughs> or uh, yeah, winners, also to prevent winners like, whale winners whale <laughs> block with like I don't know, like you know what like you know block out with skull cap, bring in another skull cap. You correct. You know, yeah. Hit blade break on your tunic, bring in another one. Well, actually, no. no, that won't work. It's just trigger at the start of your turn, so by the time. You get around to that trigger, your blade oh, break item will have destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess you would have to use mostly battle worn equipment. Right. Or tempered huh. only once. Now, I wonder with the facts that you just spat, which thank God, because for somehow I didn't read that. So that makes me feel <laughs> a lot more comfortable about having to collect every playable hero. I wonder if they're going to make new Dory and new Reinar blitz legal. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Well, yeah, I actually didn't think about that. I mean, they probably will if they want it to be like a starter set, right? Yeah, I think they'd have to. I think they would. I think they would have to. I think maybe it's like if it wasn't printed in some sort of product, it's not legal. That's going to be my interpretation of it. Because if it's just a promo handed out that was just or just generated, you know, like for like Rudy's thing or the ones for the the people who go to pro tour or the cosplayers, those cards are just given out. They're printed. Those I don't think should be legal, but the ones, anything put into a supplemental set or like an actual thing you buy product you buy, I think those should be legal. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that makes a ton of sense. And especially it would just be weird to like buy my dual decks. I've been playing for two weeks. I want to go to an armory. It's like, what do you mean? I can't like, oh, I can buy these. one of these blitz decks. They have banned cards. Like, it would just keep getting worse. <laughs> cool. Well, so, yeah, now I'm a little bit more excited about this Taylor card now that I know it's a collector piece. So, yeah, 
Matt, I think we covered about everything. Did you have anything else or perhaps some parting thoughts? Well, Pro Tour New Jersey is right around the corner. Um, yeah. Also, you know, um, I'm very happy how CL won that uh, Arsenal Pass giveaway. Uh, he yeah. had by far the most amount of votes, which is really sweet. Most amount Absolutely. of nominations. You know, we really got together and that was uh, pretty, uh, pretty special. Right. And I feel like there's so many people I know, like myself included, where Haciel like helped them through their first armory or walked players through things. And I feel like he's done so much, at least for the South Florida flesh and blood community. It's really cool to send him up to New Jersey and, um, you know, show him that South Florida probably has the most competitive meta in the world. We're I, I think so, people. man. I really do. I agree, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And Haciel was grinding those. was grinding those PQs, man. You know, and it's unfortunately he still can't get into Pro Tour um, without, without a PTR invite. But he at least gets to go to the calling on the backs of the Arsenal Pass. Uh, on the the lovely gentleman on the Arsenal Pass, Hayden Dale, and uh, I'm sorry, I <laughs> help me out here, Doug. The um, uh, Brendan. Oh Brendan's my God! I'm so sorry, I blanked on his name. So Hayden and Brendan. I yes. uh, oh, I'm sorry, Brendan. If you ever hear this podcast, that's why. So that's the thing. Podcasts they're always first names. So that's why I always uh, Brendan Patrick and Hayden Dale. That's why yes. I always shove yes, my yes, last yes. name in, like I'm famous or something. Like that way you yeah, remember. Doug Dijon and Matt Rodriguez. Exactly. <laughs> Right on. Well, yeah, I think that does it for this week. This has been a pretty cool week. It's I thought it was going to be a slow too. news week. No, I mean, we actually ended up getting quite a bit of content. It was actually good. Absolutely. Well, with all that said, uh, let's hope that next week is not a slow news week. As we prepare for Pro Tour New Jersey, maybe, uh, maybe flesh and blood will strike while the iron's hot. And... Uh, try to distract some people from magic spoilers with perhaps some hints to new sets or please. something to think about in the future. Or spoilers for that dual deck already, please. Yeah, right? Something. I'm like getting Show the itches, Reinar. you know? Show <laughs> Reinar, even though he's, he's not an orc yet, but maybe. We're going to make him an orc. We're going to make a change.org Let's petition. go. Orcs, All right, guys. Let's go. <laughs> all right. I guess we'll see you all next week. Take care.